Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning, everybody. You know, as I've grown into my middle age, in my 40s, I've done some self reflection and discovered, among other things, that I think I've always had a little bit of a heart uh, of a revolutionary. I can remember when I was in middle school, I watched Rambo for the first time. I don't know if any of you remember watching Rambo for the first time, but it, it, it brought a number of feelings online for me um, that Sylvester Stallone was an unstoppable machine of war and that oh my gosh, is this real? Are there still POWs in bamboo cages in Vietnam? You know, this was in like the mid-late 80s. Is that still going on? And it, I, it, it like got a hold of my heart. It really bothered me. And my father was a, a Vietnam veteran and didn't talk about it very much, but I would ask him like gingerly and, and he would be like, well, I don't know, you know, and, and it, it left enough uncertainty that I found myself, I started researching this and I found lo and behold, like there is for everything else, there's a whole subculture of theorists that believed at the time that there were still POWs being held surreptitiously in Vietnam. And, and there was a, like, there were organizations, you know, POW, MIA, you are not forgotten. And so I like mailed in the form to join the organization, sent like my 15 bucks and got the bumper sticker and I put it on my math notebook. And, you know, I was like, you are not forgotten. I am here. And then later on, it, it, I started learning about uh, other things like, you know, that dolphins, helpless, playful, adorable creatures that they are, were, were getting caught ruthlessly in tuna nets by these, by these tuna fishermen who were mass producing it for the cans of tuna, which, by the way, I believe are evidences of the fall of man. Like, Satan has no creative power, you know, he just has the power to distort or deceive. So he takes something God created for good, like a tasty fish, and put it into a, a shelf-stable product that smells like cat food. Super gross. Anyway, that's just, I really dislike tuna, the product, not tuna, the fish, tuna, the shelf-stable, disgusting, man-made perversion. Anyway, the fact that tuna were being caught, were caught at such a, um, a mass production rate to sell this, this horrible product and dolphins were being caught in the crossfire, it just, it, it appalled me. It offended my soul. So I like joined Greenpeace. I sent in another $15 in the mail. You know, some kids were sending in the, the receipts and the proof of purchase of their Cracker Jack to get their spy decoder ring. For me, it was like Greenpeace. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to free the dolphins. And I put the sticker on my social studies notebook. And it, Felt like maybe the inner activist got a little bit of a voice. But upon reflection, I realized there was a second thing happening in me. Yes, I, I, there was like, do you remember Coldplay's uh, Russia Blood to the Head record? It's one of my top 10 uh, favorite albums. He said, I want to buy a gun and start a war if you can show me something worth fighting for. And I think there was some of that in me, but there was something else working like a subroutine beneath the surface of my consciousness. And that was that I think there was a, 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 a me, a young me that was coming online to the world that wanted to belong, that wanted to be a part of something bigger than me, something that mattered and endured. And I think as a 12, 13, 14-year-old adolescent, my soul, right under my nose, was asking, 
When Can I Belong? That's our title this morning. And we're continuing in our series called How to Talk About Jesus with Humans. Pastor George did such a great job last week framing this subject in the context of the, the, the tricky, tired, yet redemptive and essential idea of evangelism. Even the word creates some pricklies in good Christian society. It's the kind of thing like flossing that we know we're supposed to do, but if we're honest, very few of us do do or even want to do. And it seems that evangelism in the post-everything era is due um, a redress, a reformation, and perhaps a redemption, because this is Jesus' idea. And at the end of the day, the gospel is good news. There's nothing I love more than Jesus, and ordinarily, I love talking about the things I love. So why do I not like talking about this thing that I love more than anything else? It's because maybe we've gotten distorted in the way we understand how we ought to talk about Jesus with humans. And so we're going to continue in our pursuit in Scripture. Last month, our series looked at what it means to live in family. And as that series wrapped up the banquet table, we saw Jesus in this parable said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you can find to come so that the house and the banquet table will be full. And And so what we saw is that We talk at Denver United about being us means to live with Jesus, to live in family, and to live on mission. But see, these are inextricably linked. To live with Jesus is to live in family. And then to live in family is to live on mission. If Jesus is the head of that family, Matthew chapter 9 is where we're going to focus this morning. If you'll turn there with me, we'll also put it on your screen in verse 9. The text reads, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. This Matthew of whom this story teaches is the author of the book. So this is an autobiographical account. Just tuck that away because that doesn't change that it's significant or that it's God's word, but it gives you a little extra insight into the the in-depthness and perhaps um, soul exposure of this particular passage in God's word. He saw Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth, that was his job, of course, and said, follow me and be my disciple. So Matthew got up and followed him, and later Jesus invited, rather Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Father, as we give our attention to your word this morning, we pray that the Spirit of God would fill our hearts afresh and bring it to life and transform us through your word at work in our hearts by your Spirit. We give our focused attention to your word now, and this is our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse 9 says, Jesus saw a man named Matthew 
sitting at his tax collector's booth and said, follow me and be my disciple. Fascinating that Jesus' call to this man was literally in the act of tax collecting. And as I think many of us at this point are aware, tax collectors were a particularly debased substratum of the general sinner population, such that they were referred to regularly in the Gospels by the writers of first century scripture and residents of that culture, tax collectors and sinners. Like there were sinners of the garden variety, and then there were the extra sinful tax collectors. Why were they so despised? Well, one, because they were uh, chronically dishonest, and they stole, they extorted more money, and that people were powerless. There was a recourse to hold them accountable. It's not like you can, you know, vote your congressman out of office. The tax collectors were appointed by their overlords in Rome. And two is that they were viewed to be sellouts. And what could be more uh, grating to a people like the people of Israel with the solidarity of their culture and the singularity of opposition that had marked their history for centuries than one of their own turning against them, a traitor uh, of Benedict Arnold proportions. And so tax collectors were viewed as the very bottom of the barrel. Thus, later we see the religious leaders the upper stratum of their society, saying, how come your teacher eats with such scum? What's fascinating is that Jesus called Matthew in that moment. He didn't identify him or start wooing him or dropping hints, but suggesting that maybe he choose a different occupation. Jesus found Matthew in the act of tax collecting and said, come, and follow me. And what you see in this is something that was one of Jesus' ways. Jesus habitually made space for people to belong, and he did it right up front. He made space for people to belong up front. And while this would seem rather unremarkable, it is so counterintuitive, and for us as much as for them in first century Palestine, so countercultural. Jesus had a way of honoring people right where they were, and allowing them to be there. They weren't outsiders to him. This, as it turns out, was a way of God from the very beginning of the formation of God's covenant community, the people of Israel, when he called them apart from the nations of the world to reflect and honor him. In Leviticus chapter 9, we see God describing what it means to be the covenant community that bore his name. When a stranger, he told them, sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall listen. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as you would the native the natural-born citizen among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Now, this passage establishes two important values of God that we see manifest in Jesus' way with people. One is that it's possible, it's viable in God's understanding for outsiders, for strangers or to sojourn, to walk the journey of life with you that that's allowable. And he doesn't say if, if circumstances should conspire for the unthinkable to happen and an outsider finds his way in the camp, well, have pity on that dude. 
He says, when a stranger is journeying with you, God makes room for the possibility of outsiders being insiders. And he says, when that eventuates, you're to treat that person not as a second-class citizen, not as an outsider waiting their turn, paying their dues, or earning their stripes, but as you would treat one another and love them as you love yourselves. And friends, I think that we get halfway there pretty instinctively as modern 21st century followers of Jesus. We're at this point really attentive to, and I think okay to maybe pretty good at welcoming outsiders. You know, you, you can hardly find a, a, an evangelical church these days that doesn't have a big banner saying welcome home when people walk in and things like that. And I don't mean to, to poke fun at that. I think that's beautiful that we welcome people, right? But it, it's, the, it's the, the current that flows just beneath the surface of our welcome that really draws the boundary, doesn't it? Because often our welcoming implies that it's conditional. It maybe doesn't state it overtly, but it implies that it's contingent upon the outsider assimilating and, and improving so that they can join our inner circle ranks. Craig Springer is the president of Alpha here in the U.S., and as George mentioned last week, wrote a book recently that just brilliantly captures these ideas of reinventing um, evangelism and going to the root of what God intended it to be for us to talk about Jesus with humans and looking at how Jesus did it, like Jesus the evangelist. What was he like? Because all of Jesus' ways were good. He did all things well. And uh, Craig, as it turns out, offices and lives right here in Denver, is a member of our church family and has become a, a friend, a dear friend over the course of the last year. And I'm learning so much from him about how Jesus approached the people of his day and what that means for us. In his book, How to Revive Evangelism, he gives us some really insightful and practical guidance. I want to take just a moment and suggest that you grab his book. Uh, this is one of those, you know, maybe a couple times a year I'll, I'll take one of the books that I reference or quote from and say, this would be worth getting. Um, and this would be worth getting. It's, it's a a foundational idea set that's going to be central to what it means for us to be Denver United in the months and years to come. So uh, you can just go to Amazon and pick that up. You'll find a link on our homepage, denverunited.com. It'll take you to the page for that. And, uh, you know, Amazon, you order it and it's there in a day. Uh, in his book, Craig writes, at the end of the day, two men, oh, you know what? I'm going to start a little before that. I'm going to read to you from the book because I, I wanted to give you just a little more context. So scratch that. He writes, there's a natural distance that a welcoming, assimilation-focused environment can unintentionally impose on a discerning, post-everything audience. It's all smiles and kind words and even hot coffee, but at the end of the day, too many welcoming environments withhold the beyond-the-surface-level belonging and 
withhold involvement until the new person figures out what behaviors and beliefs are expected and they adhere to those behaviors and beliefs. They can never quite feel like they belong until they decide to sign on the dotted line or swear off all the old ways or speak in the new vernacular. The interesting thing about insiders is we were all outsiders first, right? And I think many of us Perhaps most or all of us can remember that time, whether it be in church or in some other insider-centric environment, like going to the gym or being in youth competitive sports with our, uh, our peers or our kids or whatever, uh, where you are welcomed in, but the distinction between you and the insiders is made tacitly but implicitly clear. I think that it kind of goes this way. Um, in society, but in church as a microcosm. And I'm going to zoom in on church because that's us and that's what we're about, right? We want to build Jesus's church, like we often say, because Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against that thing. No promises about your church, but I'll build my church. So our ongoing pursuit is to refine what we're building or scrap and rebuild if it becomes necessary in order to build Jesus's church. Well, I want to look at how Jesus church seemed intended to focus or to function. Uh, And it it seems like in society, there's a progression of outsidership to insidership that kind of goes like this. It goes, behave our way, like change your manner, your ways, and then over time, adopt our beliefs. And, you know, so start acting the part because there's not really a lot of room for um, people who don't act according to Jesus' way in, in many of our understanding of Christian community. So behave and then believe. And, you know, that might culminate in this glorious day with tears and an altar call and a goosebumpy song. And, and you, you know, you, you bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. You say the sinner's prayer. Believe. And then you get your kind of membership card and you can belong. That's the way the unspoken progression works. Behave, believe, belong. But Jesus, he inverted the equation. And Jesus' way said, belong first, right up front. And then over time, come to believe. And then the outflow of your belief in every facet of your life is going to change the way you behave. So Jesus' way of interacting with people was belong first, he met them where they were at, and then gradually come to believe, influence them such that their core files get rewritten, right? Jesus met people where they were at and kind of earned the right, if you will, in their hearts to tell them what he thinks they should think. And then over time, the renewing of their minds, as Romans 12 talks about, precipitates a transformation of their outward being and the way they behave or interact. And that is a foundational overhaul. That is a systemic change to the way that church tacitly functions. But this is Jesus' way. Craig quotes a Temple University sociologist who studied the Starbucks phenomenon here and around the world and what that 
professor observed is that while Starbucks has a wide range of hot and cold drink flavors, customers are paying for everything but the coffee. Carrying a Starbucks cup, he concludes, gives a sense of belonging to a special club. See, Starbucks has monetized, even like sociologically weaponized, this Jesus philosophy, right? Truth is true, whether we call it Jesus' truth or not. All truth is God's truth. Well, they learned how to harness this tidbit of God's truth, inviting people right up front to belong and then allowing that their belief system will come along in tow, that, that this improved coffee experience is, is a, a metaphor for an improved life experience, and then they end up complying with the state of, of life and the set of behaviors uh, that, uh, are, that define Starbucks Nation, right? And I think that that is exactly what was happening when I was in middle school. I was looking for something that gave opportunity, outlet to the righteous, unformed, unknown to me, inarticulatable resonance with Jesus' truth, that I could just belong. I was asking, when can I belong? Do I have to, do I have, to have earned my, my POW, we see you stripes? Do I have to have gone and toured Saigon? Do I have to have campaigned at the Capitol or lobbied my congressman before I can get my membership card and the sticker on my math notebook? I instinctively wanted to know, when can I belong? Can I belong right up front? And then come along in my life, thoughts and actions. Social science, of course, backs this up and has for decades. An article in Psychology Today gave concise voice to the conclusions of psychology professionals for decades that the desire to belong ranks in the top five among the most fundamental human needs. Among the longest-running TV shows in American history was this quirky concept, it's a half-an-hour sitcom that had just one setting. It was a static scene, virtually never forayed outside that setting. It was a humdrum bar in the Back Bay neighborhood in Boston called Cheers. And you got this array of average to slightly below average characters, just humans living out their lives. In every episode was a sort of day in the life, minus the two, you know, celebrity, superstar, good-looking people. But the fact that they were there was like the exception that proved the rule, right? It was Cliff the postman who could just belong there at that bar. And Norm, the cranky insurance guy. And everybody had this place that they could call home. And the simple song that was the jingle at the starting of the show gave voice to the inner cry of a whole generation. Sometimes you want to go 
where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. And this, friends, is deep in the human experience. And Jesus' way acknowledged this God image attribute and met people right at that place. And that's how I believe his church is supposed to function as well. In verse 10, the story continues later. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. So you got sinners. You got the disreputable cast of sinners, and then you got the tax collectors, right? And these weren't the, the upper half sinners. These were the tax collectors and the other disreputable sinners who were friends of Matthew's. Matthew, so excited to have met Jesus, to be invited to belong, that he invites Jesus unwittingly into his world, says, hey, you let me belong in your world. I want you to belong in my world, little knowing how unsociable in Christian circles that would be. And of course, Jesus went. So Jesus and his disciples go to this dinner party at the house of Matthew, the tax collector, with these tax collector and disreputable sinner friends. And this portion of the story seems to be as much about what Jesus did not say is what he did. It seems like a lot of the meat is in the space between the lines. Like a good Hemingway novel, he doesn't tell you it, it, what you're wanting to know about the backstory, you have to infer it from what he does not say, right? Jesus often leaves it a little bit subtle, tells it a little bit slant. And so here, what Jesus doesn't say is what every religious person would think, which is, hey, if I'm gonna spend time with you, I'm gonna make it clear to you and everyone who might hear that I was here, that I'm here on mission. I'm here to tell you that essentially everything you're doing is wrong. But Jesus doesn't, notably doesn't say that. He didn't see projects or numbers or deals to close. He didn't see fish to catch or crops to harvest. He saw people to walk with down the road of life. Jesus invited them to belong. And what we see in his life and in his, in his example is that belonging requires authenticity in relationship. Belonging requires authenticity in relationship. The ones who were spiritually lost, they were people, not projects to Jesus. In verse 11, the Pharisees saw this and they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? And I think this verse is fascinating. If you just think about it for a second, um, there would be a couple of quasi-justifiable reasons that Jesus, a religious leader and rabbi, respected among the people, might deign to eat with such scum. Most evidently, it would be to tell them that they are such scum. Because their scumminess in perpetuity suggests that they either are okay with being scummy or are unaware that they are not meeting the standard, that they're not making the cut. And so a rabbi, if he would go slumming, would do so to point out to them just how short they are falling. But the fact that the religious aristocracy were asking, why on earth is he eating with them, makes clear that they at least knew he wasn't eating with them to tell them that they were scum. 
Because if that were the case, the Pharisees still might not hear me. They still might not like it. They still might not accept that Jesus was eating with Matthew and his scummy friends to tell them that they're scummy. Like that might be a little too lowbrow for a rabbi to hike up the, the fancy hems of your robes and go into the slums. But at least there's a righteous explanation. But the fact that they're asking, why is he eating with them makes clear Jesus wasn't there telling them that they were wrong. Jesus was there attending a dinner party, communicating in reciprocity that you can belong right up front. And there's a tremendous authenticity that that bespeaks to his relationship with the man that would go on to be his disciple, one of his 12 apostles, the apostle Matthew. In Luke chapter seven, scripture records that these same Pharisees observe some pretty stark and ironically not inaccurate things about Jesus. Jesus points out that the son of man feasts and drinks and you religious leaders and hypocrites say he's a glutton and a drunkard. And listen, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, Jesus doesn't dispute that. He doesn't say, hey, you're wrong. I'm not their friend. I was there on mission. I don't have anything there beneath me. He doesn't dispute the veracity. He's just saying, you're giving me that label as a badge of shame. And I'm telling you, I wear that label as a badge of honor. The son of man is a friend of sinners indeed. And so he's not a friend in quotes, like pseudo friend, but I can't really get too close to those sinners lest they infect me or lest my reputation be called into question. He was an authentic friend to the, the lowest of the low. That is the Jesus way. He didn't preach at them. Remember last week, 40 questions to every one answer. It seems very likely that Jesus did the dinner party Jesus' way. He engaged with them, about them. He wasn't intimidated and he wasn't threatened. He didn't seem overly nervous that they might get hit by a bus or like a chariot on their way out the dinner party and not know where they were going for eternity. He didn't feel a, an immediate sense of urgency about getting them saved. He felt rather an urgency going to this dinner party right after inviting Matthew to belong up front. If there was any urgency in Jesus' interaction, it was to communicate the authenticity of his friendship. He engaged them where they were and he, he treated them like humans. Where they were referred to in society by the standard bearers of what the good and just society looks like as such scum. He didn't treat them like scum. He treated them like people. Did you see a couple weeks ago in the news the school board in San Jose that got caught on camera? It's, not, it's hardly funny, but it kind of is, um, except that it could be any of us. They, you know, we've all learned how to have Zoom meetings, and then some of us have learned how to broadcast our Zoom meetings in order to continue to function. Well, California has been in a bit of upheaval around the, the, the very tense debate, which I don't mean to make light of, about whether and when they should return to in-person school. And the school board was having a, a town hall meeting with parents over Zoom. And they apparently 
were unaware that they hadn't hit the end broadcast thing, you know, that I'm really glad that Chad always hits <laughs> when we end broadcasting. <laughs> that, and so they were interacting with each other and just sort of letting off steam. Maybe, I don't mean to exonerate them. They might have been awful in what they said. I don't know. But they, they, the fact is they continued to broadcast their private conversation afterward where they were just letting the parents have it and talking about how annoying they were and how I mean, things that are terrible, but you can imagine, right? And, and I say that and you're like, man, you're taking their side. No, it's just that we're all them a little bit, right? And so then the next day they all resigned. The entire, the entire school board resigned. And it was like headlines in Google News. And, and like, well, that couldn't have made the tense situation better. Um, but I think what happens if we forget to stop the broadcast button in our conversations about non-Christians, in our conversations about evangelism, what do they overhear? They overhear themselves being talked about like projects, like numbers, like notches in our belt, like goals, like sales targets. And so we may not mean it this way, we may mean it in an earnest desire to fulfill Jesus' commission, but the way that can't help but be received is inauthentic. And Jesus modeled authentic relationships. And there's a little bit of a tension, isn't there? Because Jesus said, used metaphors for in, in joining us to his mission, like I'm going to make you fishers of men, or the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. And in so doing, Jesus is trying to make simple and clear in the language of fishermen and farmers that God has asked us to be part of the leadership, to be priests, battlefields commissioned, and not just spectators or onlookers or cheerleaders. And as we often do with Jesus, like in his parables, I think we're susceptible here to over-interpreting Jesus' teaching and, and going beyond the understanding that we are to be engaged primarily in the work, like we're engaged of, of discipleship, like we're engaged primarily in the work of our vocation, of fishing. We're to be the protagonists in the story, but to take that another level and make the people out there subhuman. They're fish to be caught. We don't think about whether fish know the authenticity of our motive for yanking them out of their Aquarian habitats. Well, really, I'm sorry, man, but I just needed to eat and you're lower in the food chain than me as you flop around dying slowly, right? We don't care because they're not human. How do we talk about Jesus with humans, George? First, we acknowledge that they're humans. They're image bearers of the Most High God. They're made in the same image that we are, and Jesus Christ died on a cross for them. How dare we reduce them to sales numbers or bumper crops? Matthew alone, 
the autobiographer of that story that we looked at this morning records this teaching of Jesus, perhaps because of how resonant this teaching, he's the only one of the four evangelists to give us this story. And it's perhaps because this story hits different, as the kids say, with Matthew. The king will say to those on his right, Matthew records Jesus in chapter 25 as saying in the context of his apocalyptic teaching. This is the way it's going to be at the end, the final judgment, the great white throne. God's going to sift people and he's going to sift them, not necessarily along the lines that we think. He's going to say to the ones on this half the room, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you, you gave me clothing. I was sick. You cared for me. I was in prison. And you came to visit. The common theme here seems to be I was an outsider and you went all out for me. I was alone, in need, afraid, and wondering, how high do I have to climb out of this pit? How much of a non-parked car do I need to be? How much will I have to have helped myself before I'm allowed to belong? And you came in with this like scandalous, countercultural, this radical hospitality. Here's what Craig wrote. What's interesting, so insightful, is that Jesus doesn't ask them to bring to the throne of grace their church doctrine or their baptismal archives the number of notches on their belt. He separates the sheep from the goats based on how well they served the outsider, how successful they were in creating spaces of belonging. So let me ask you, how successful are we in creating spaces of belonging. Are we, are, we, are we creating spaces of welcome, of authentic welcome? I believe absolutely. You guys are amazing at that. I routinely hear from folks that are new in our church how welcome they felt. But are we creating spaces of belonging? Remember in Luke 14, Jesus turned to the host of the banquet at which he was a guest and said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, talk about the grenade on the table, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the lame and the blind. Are we creating spaces of belonging, not just for people who are between churches or new to our city, for good insiders waiting to be acknowledged and assimilated, but are we creating spaces of belonging for everyone? Because friends, I think this is what it means to be us. I think this is what it means to be Jesus. And that this is what Alpha is all about. You heard Pastor George talk about it last week. You saw the video this week. You're gonna keep hearing it and hearing it because Alpha, it's, it's, an, it's simply a, a, a ministry, but it's a ministry that adds 
to our church that comes along to support. It's like a, it's like a, um, a plug-in on the website that enhances what we do to create tracks to run on, to train and, and aid and facilitate our righteous work of creating spaces of belonging, of demonstrating this, this radical hospitality. That's what Alpha is for, and I am so excited for it. And along with like do good days, this simple enduring mandate to go and represent Jesus among the poorest and most marginalized in our city, which we're always going to do until Jesus returns and gathering in community and in, in united groups across the city to build each other up and encourage one another, sharpen one another in faith, like my group did last night. We're going to do these things ongoingly. Alpha is getting added to that panoply, that array of primary things we do. And so we're going to keep telling you about it and keep inviting you to extend this radical hospitality and where the initial reticence, where the, the, the uh, prickly vibes come up of, man, this is the time that I start getting tense around evangelism because I don't want to be that, that door-to-door salesman for my friends, let alone the friends that don't know Jesus that I've spent time really building relational equity with. And that's just the point. Alpha is, is an experience of authenticity and relationship and a training platform for us that really won't allow, it'll remove the possibility of the smarminess of the door-to-door salesmanship and the dotted line factor. And there's no high pressure pitch at the end. It's simply a space of radical hospitality. And you know what that looks like to the outsider? It looks like love. And that's how Jesus said that they will know we are his followers. Amen? All right, would you stand with me? Wherever you guys are, in your living rooms, under your blankets, let's just lift up holy hands in prayer like the scripture says, and let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, would you give us the heart of Jesus? Would you renovate our hearts, change the way we think? Lord, would you forgive us for misinterpreting your mandate and treating people like programs or projects and making relationship about some performance metric of ours rather than about the authentic expression of your love. Would you renew us in your love that we would see people whom you died for, people whom you were delighted to walk slowly through life with, to listen and engage with curiosity like we talked about last week, to allow belonging up front like we talked about today, and to project Jesus through our authenticity in relationship. Lord, would you change us and grow us that through us you might change this city and grow your kingdom and transform lives with your hope. Father, I bless my friends today and I pray that this day and this week you would keep them safe, you would renew their strength, you would provide for their needs and you would cause their hearts to rise and shine with your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, everybody. God bless you. We love you so much. I hope you enjoy the snow. Make a fort. Go easy on your back when you're shoveling. Have an amazing week and we'll see you next Sunday. 
We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 